Welcome to the Diabetes Canada Healthcare Huddle, a podcast that invites healthcare professionals to listen in on the discussion as we explore a diabetes-related topic. Each episode, we will present a case study, then have a conversation with an expert about the clinical challenge. Finally, we will revisit the case and see how we can apply our new knowledge and tools. My name is Dr. Sarah Stafford. I'm an endocrinologist in Surrey, BC, and I'm joined by my colleague, Gail McNeil, who's a diabetes educator and clinical nurse specialist from Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a wonderful topic that I think has incredible clinical relevance. Today we'll be talking about the new Diabetes Canada chapter update on hypoglycemia. And we are joined by Dr. Jean-Francois Yale. Welcome, Jean-Francois. Thank you, Sarah. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Yale is a professor of endocrinology at McGill University, an endocrinologist at the McGill University Health Center and at LMC Endocrinology and Metabolism Clinics. Dr. Yale chaired the clinical and scientific section of the CDA from 92 to 94, and he chaired the expert committee that published the 2001 Canadian Diabetes Association Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Prevention and Management of Hypoglycemia in Diabetes. He was a member of the steering committee for the Canadian Diabetes Association, CPG, from 95 to 2019. What an outstanding contribution. And his research interests, including more than 250 publications, include prevention of hypoglycemia and type 1 diabetes, intensive management of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and has participated in numerous multi-center trials. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jean-Francois. My pleasure. My real pleasure. Good to do it in the name of all the other authors that are uh, uh, sort of named in the in the guidelines and which was led by uh, Ileana Liga, which I, I thank for her leadership because it was a big task. Absolutely. And an incredibly important topic. Hypoglycemia affects the lives of all of our people with type 2 and type 1 diabetes. And, and Gail, I know in the clinics, I'm sure you encounter hypoglycemia all the time in your conversations with patients. Is this a common topic that you need to address? Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Yale, to shed new light on the topic of hypoglycemia. And I know although we have newer medications which do not cause hypoglycemia and newer technologies which help us detect our blood glucose, the hypoglycemia to me remains a major barrier in achieving blood glucose values. So I'm very happy to see in the mental health chapter where they address the fear of hypoglycemia, referring it to a psychological syndrome, because I think this fear is paralyzing for some of our patients. So although we see this every day in clinical practice, one patient always stands out when I think of the hypoglycemic episodes. And this is Maggie, again, not her real name, but she's a real person. (laughs) She's 26 years old and she had had type one diabetes for 12 years. She worked as an assistant at a busy real estate company. And recently she changed her new insulin that was reported to quote, cause less hypoglycemia. So this particular morning, Maggie was late for work. So she had a light breakfast and she rushed to work. Her last memory before losing consciousness in the lobby of her building was her alarm that there were so many people about. Now, following this hypoglycemic episode, Maggie was totally traumatized. She talked about being so embarrassed in front of her co-workers and friends, and she feels that they were treating her very differently now, that they're wary, and she feels like a stigma attached to her because of the diabetes and the low blood sugar. So due to the fear of recurrence, Maggie has now become very rigid in her management and she set really, really high target ranges for her blood glucose and her vow is this will never happen again. But my question is at what cost to her management? So 
Very timely to have updated the information. I'm looking forward to discussion of new strategies to help patients navigate the very real barrier of hypoglycemia. Thanks so much, Gail, for putting that in clinical context. Jean-Francois, you know, I'm sure this is a story you hear all the time as well. Of course, I think hypoglycemia is so frequent. It's, uh, it's one of the major barriers in obtaining very good glucose control because of the consequences it can have. So it's very frequent. It's important. People are afraid of it. And I think we have a lot of tools now to try to address it better. Absolutely. I think the landscape has completely changed now with changes in monitoring, changes in pharmacotherapy, and also our recognition of the importance of hypoglycemia and the under-recognition of hypoglycemia. So let's jump into our new guideline update. Um, things have really changed here in this new update, and I, even the definition of hypoglycemia has been updated. That's correct. Uh, we, we used to define it as saying it's a level under four with the use of secretagogues or insulin. So it was restricted to that population. Um, and, and that's because it can be normal to be under four when you don't have diabetes. So we were defining it that way. But the International Hypoglycemia Study Group came up with different definitions a few years ago, and we decided to harmonize with them. So that changes a little bit the terminology. For example, a level between three and 3.9 is really now an alert value. So it's a value which is not necessarily abnormal. It's a level one hypoglycemia. Uh, and it's really an alert for people that are at risk to intervene at that time, but it's not necessarily a hypoglycemic uh, event per se. The level two is a more important, that's the real hypoglycemic level, usually under three of glucose, people need to intervene absolutely. And what we used to call severe hypoglycemia is now called level three, just a keep that, that numbering uh, concept, level three hypoglycemia. So that's when people need the assistance of somebody else. It's the same definition of what we used to call severe hypoglycemia. And, and I think these definitions are incredibly important because we know from a clinical context that it's a very different thing to have a sugar of maybe 3.8 or hungry. We self-treated that. Um, usually, as you very correctly said, that's a signal to look at therapy and see if we need to make adjustments to reduce the risk of more significant hypoglycemia. Um, very different, though, from a you know level three hypoglycemia where someone is needing rescue. Absolutely. The, the level three are the ones that bring the most consequences, of course. Um, and fortunately, we think they'll be less frequent now with all the technologies we have, particularly for people with type one diabetes. So there, there are certainly some preventive approaches that we can use, which are detailed in the guidelines. And as you said, in type two diabetes, um, we have a lot of new agents now that do not cause hypoglycemia. And the pharmacology chapter, the guidelines insist on saying we should consider hypoglycemia in our choice of the agents, we should favor the ones that don't don't cause hypoglycemia when we can. Yeah, and I think that really has been an incredible shift in our management of type two diabetes, working to reduce the risk or prevent the risk of hypoglycemia by focusing on those agents that do not cause hypoglycemia. But you know, knowing that there's absolutely still a role for other agents, particularly insulin, and when using those agents, we need to be aware of the risk of hypoglycemia as well. Um, you mentioned tools that we have to be aware, have warnings for hypoglycemia. I assume that continuous glucose monitoring is one of those tools that's very important here? Absolutely, particularly for those at higher, uh, highest risk, so those on insulin particularly, uh, and particularly the type 1 uh, people. Um, 
certainly we do describe how the use of CGM can reduce the risk of hypoglycemia. So that's certainly an important role to consider. Or when it's not available, more frequent uh, capillary blood glucose monitoring, uh, because in some cases, unfortunately, it might not be available to have continuous glucose monitoring. But it's certainly tools that change the landscape of how we address this problem. Yeah. And, you know, just thinking about what you said with CGM as well. Um, one of the things I notice in clinical practice is that when people have had hypoglycemia, they become quite fearful of having another episode of hypoglycemia. And, and at least in my clinical practice, I find that CGM is a nice tool um, because you have alerts and alarms to kind of give you warning. Um, I see there's a new section in the chapter talking specifically about the fear of hypoglycemia. You're totally correct, Sarah, that it's, it's a very important topic, uh, often ignored, but we, we have to take it into account. Uh, it can be quite dramatic in the life of somebody to have a level three hypoglycemic event. Um, often it changes the relationship with the spouse and the family. It brings fear at work, fear of being embarrassed in public, et cetera. Uh, so, so it's certainly something which is important. So there's a new section on fear. We recognize that a certain level of fear, at least conscious of the existence of hypoglycemia, is important. Um, I'm sure you have, just like I have and everybody, a few patients that are not fearful at all of hypoglycemia, less than we would want them to be. They have frequent episodes and they don't seem to care. And we have to, 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 to uh, sort of instruct them on that. But the chapter concentrates the section on the excessive fear of hypoglycemia which can occur to the point that it brings a lot of anxiety. It brings some people to try to get higher levels of glucose than they should. Uh, it can also bring them to uh, not give the amount of insulin that they should to avoid physical activity or exercise, um, et cetera. So all these bad behaviors in terms of glucose control can be caused by this excessive fear of hypoglycemia. So we do provide questions that people can ask to. Um, sort of detect this fear, excessive fear of hypoglycemia, and some strategies to try to, to go away. So you mentioned the technology, certainly uh, having the, the ability to have an alert before the hypoglycemia occurs or as soon as it occurs can be reassuring to many people. So that can certainly uh, help. Uh, sometimes we need more behavioral approaches or uh, education on, on cues to how to recognize and how to sort of limit this this fear. In some cases, we even suggest to refer to uh, uh, you know psychological help that that might be required for some patients. But it's certainly something important, and it doesn't just affect the person with diabetes. It affects also the family, the friends, uh, the the work colleagues, etc. Um, so it's certainly important uh, to 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 address that. Yeah, and I think it's just incredibly important that we recognize the interplay between mental health and diabetes management as well. And correctly, you recognize it's often the patient's partner who's very fearful of hypoglycemia. They were the one who might have had to rescue the patient in this instance. Um, so very important to have tools to support all of the members of the family as well. Absolutely. It's often the person with diabetes that loses consciousness doesn't see everything that's happening. And, and and we have to make sure that the spouse doesn't become a parent. Um, did, how much insulin did you take tonight? Are you sure you should take that much? Maybe you should take an extra snack. Uh, are you this? Are you that? So uh, at some point, it can be uh, cause a lot of stress in the family. 
Absolutely. And, you know, while we're talking about level three hypoglycemia, um, the management of level hypothyroidism, sorry, I'm going to say that again, we'll edit it. The management of level three hypoglycemia has really evolved in the last couple of years. We have a new tool for management as well. That's right. The guidelines do mention the the, uh, the availability now of nasal glucagon. Um, we do continue to say that intramuscular subcutaneous glucagon can be used because it's certainly very effective. The main advantage of the nasal glucagon is its ease of administration. So the, the guidelines do describe the studies that, that prove that. Essentially, uh, in simulation studies, we've seen that giving uh, sub-Q or intramuscular glucagon was actually quite difficult. Uh, it's not the person with diabetes that gives it. It's somebody else. So they've been trained six months ago, uh, and then suddenly the person is convulsing in, in the living room, and they have to prepare a skit if they find it, first of all. And then it's it's complicated. It has to put some liquid into a bottle that has powder, dissolve the powder, retake the liquid, inject it. So it's quite a task, which can be quite frightening for the person that 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 is trying to help. And when we've done simulation studies, in half of the cases, they weren't able to give any glucagon at all. Uh, they were so nervous they would break the needle or they would go directly and inject the liquid before going to take the powder from the bottle. Uh, et cetera. Even in some cases, they injected insulin instead of injecting glucagon because it can be bad, right? So you might inject both. Um, so when we did simulations with nasal glucagon, it was much easier because it's just pushing and it's one puff and one nostril and it does the job uh, just as fast as the uh, uh, injectable glucagon. So it's certainly something that we mention. We, we don't say uh, we don't give necessarily a, a preference to one or the other because we recognize the availability might not be the same everywhere. But certainly some form of glucagon should be available to anybody uh, on insulin. And they should. we should make sure that people that are around the person with diabetes are taught how to use it. So, so, so that's a, an important new tool we have, uh, which should makes it easy. And, and it's, a, you know, it's stable for two years at room temperature, so it's easier for the person to carry it on them as well. It's a small device. And I think that last point you made is actually really critical. I, I made an observation that in my career in the last decade, I have yet to have a patient with type 1 diabetes who in the office had their injectable glucagon kit on their person when I asked them about it. But now with intranasal glucagon, I have quite often had patients say, oh, yes, it's right here in my purse. Uh, and if, you know, I'll comment that if you don't have it with you at the time that That's you right. need it, it's probably not doing you a lot of good. So I think it's just really improved kind of from a quality of life perspective. It's a lot easier for the patient and for their care providers. Absolutely. What, what I would like to see in the future is, is some kind of advertisements on TV, et cetera, uh, a little bit like they do for the EpiPen, showing to people if you find somebody unconscious and if they have this in their pocket, here's how to use it and here's what's happening. It's just so that it, the, the then the usefulness can go beyond the trained uh, family members. It can go to anybody on the street might be able to, to use it uh, appropriately. You know, that's an excellent point to do some public health education in this area. Um, thank you so much for this conversation around hypoglycemia. I think it's just an incredibly important topic. Um, Gail, you know, we've covered quite a lot today. What do you think you can take back to the clinic when you're there again and helping to counsel patients? So, wow, the information in this chapter is so relevant to practice. The new grading system with level one through three, I think, makes perfect sense, especially the term alert values on level one. 
I can relate to that one. I really appreciate the chapter authors too addressing the fear aspect that was so evident in, in Maggie and how she's she's working with her diabetes now because this fear lingers in the minds of so many of our patients. And the message I hear is to mitigate the risk is to personalize the intervention. So we now have alternatives and many adjunct medications in type two diabetes, which can reduce the risk of hypoglycemia. But I think we need to use some of these fabulous tools we have to a greater advantage, especially things like the CGMs and their alerts and the pumps. And I think this is where the educator can be the most value to the patient, helping patients to individualize and expand the use of these tools finding the person's like May's problem area and putting those tools directly into use into their daily use. Also the recognition of the link with mental health where an episode of hypoglycemia affects not only the patient as you've discussed and as Maggie experienced, but it's lasting effects on the family and relationships. This is also an area I think where educators can be very supportive with not only recognition of the fear, but empathy and emotional support but also to use some of this updated information that may make the patient feel safer. And that's, I'm referring to the nasal treatment for hypoglycemia. And I totally agree with you, Sarah and Dr. Yale, the mishaps with the injectable glucagon are too many to mention. <laughs> However, every family member I've spoken and demonstrated the use of the nasal glucagon have expressed amazement with the simplicity, simplicity of use. They, they've invariably stated to me what took them so long to develop this. So thank you so very much for the wealth of updated information that we can use in our practice. And thank you so much, Dr. Yale, for sharing your expertise. Since my early days in practice, I've seen you as a guru in the field of hypoglycemia and your work is greatly appreciated. That's great. I think that's a great summary of some of the things we've learned here today. And Jean-Francois, thank you so much for sharing this new guideline update. My pleasure, Sarah, and, and a good day to everybody. The full chapter update can be found at guidelines.diabetes.ca. And there's also a webinar with Jean-Francois on the hypoglycemia chapter update, which is available for more details. Thanks for joining us today. If you have questions about the episode or about becoming a member of the Diabetes Canada professional section, please email professional.membership at diabetes.ca. Special thanks to Adam Humphreys for providing the music for today's podcast.